This is the third Sunday of Advent. Uh, in, the, in the Western liturgy, anciently it was called Gaudete Sunday. So my sermon is going to be kind of all over the map. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, why we wear rose-colored vestments on this Sunday. Uh, to say some things to you about two themes in the season of Advent that I've talked about. One is joy and the other is expectation. And those two subjects are talked about in the reading from Isaiah and in the, in the gospel from Matthew. And then to preach out of order about the epistle from James, who's exhorting everybody to be patient. Uh, and he's speaking about the second coming of Christ. And here we all are, and he's not come yet. <laughs> so we need to talk a little bit about how we understand the second coming. And then if you'll indulge me, I'll read to you a definition of what uh, Anglican Christians have officially believed about the second coming. But I'm not sure it has much to do with how we appropriate that idea uh, in spiritual, emotional, and mental terms. So I'm going to make some suggestions uh, to you about that and see where that takes us. I also want to mention, I'm not going to preach on this yet. I don't know if any of you take the New Yorker magazine. There is an article this week in the New Yorker about science and the scientific method and a phenomenon that has occurred uh, in many scientific studies over the last 50 or 60 years, and that is that the so-called assure, assured uh, results of the scientific method have proved not to be so. And this has a lot to do, particularly for you and me, who are worried about the medical protocols that are being used on us uh, as time goes on. But also with regard to some of the issues of uh, things like gravity and some of the other things. So the idea of science giving you a repeatable result as it turns out, statistically, the results begin to decline in terms of their statistical repeatability. And it may have something to do with our internal, emotional, mental, and spiritual states who wish to only publish results that support the original conclusions. So it's an interesting uh, thing to talk about as we, as we move forward, just for fun. Rose Sunday comes... From uh, two times a year, we wear rose-colored vestments, as I mentioned, for some of us anyway. That gives the clergy the opportunity to wear a liturgical color consistent with their social and political principles. <laughs> or at least that's the view of many people. And uh, it also uh, tells us something about the, the evolution of the Western liturgy. Uh, Advent, as I mention every year on the first Sunday of Advent, is a season that originally in the northern in northern Europe was six weeks long and it was just like Lent. In fact it was called Saint Martin's Lent. So Saint Martin's feast day is on Saint Martin of Tours is on the fourteenth of November. So it goes from the fourteenth of November to what we decided Christmas was, which was the twenty fifth. But as the seasons began to evolve and we get to Charlemagne and his advisor Alcuin and so on like in the southern part of Western Europe, Northern Europe shortens this, this, the uh, season to four Sundays, but it uh, continues to have the sort of penitential tincture. Since the renewal in the liturgy about 
45 years ago in the Western liturgical churches, the Roman Catholic Church, the Episcopal Church, the Lutheran Church, and so on. Uh, there has been a um, softening of the penitential emphasis and a desire to focus more on joyful expectancy. But that penitential aspect is still there, and when it was there big time, when I went to seminary, for example, the fasting that we did during Advent was almost as strict as it was in Lent. So um, the emphasis was that on one of the Sundays in Advent and on one of the Sundays in Lent, there was going to be a kind of lightening of the, of the theme. And this was the Sunday. When you walked in in the old liturgy, instead of singing a hymn or having the organist noodle on the organ, you sang a psalm called the Introit, Gaudete Domine Semper, Rejoice Always, and then it continues in Latin, and I say always rejoice, and the readings and the themes are a little bit lighter uh, in that liturgy than they are were normally during Advent. Now we have a three-year cycle, and it's slightly changed. About 800 years ago, they decided to, in terms of the externals of worship, show this uh, in, in having rose-colored vestments rather than violet, which was the standard color in the West, although in, in, in uh, England and in Northern Europe, we had blue. And so you went from blue and you had these rose-colored vestments, which were supposed to give you a sort of lighter thing. Um, if you were a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church, you would wear a rose-colored cap. I wish I was alive then. That would have been fun. In the new common worship in the Church of England, which is one of the revised uh, prayer books that you can use now, uh, rose-colored vestments are ex explicitly mentioned as possible to wear if you have them. So I consider, for those of us who believe in a system of salvation by haberdashery, that this is an advance <laughs> to have them to have them m mentioned. You know, so um, it's not an, any longer considered a sign of the Romish cancer, which is a good thing. So two of the themes of Gaudete Sunday are joyful expect joy and expectancy. So I want to preach first about those, first in the book of the prophet Isaiah and in the gospel from Matthew. Uh, what we read today from Isaiah is one of the texts that the early Christians read and said, you know, if we'd have consulted these and thought carefully about this after experiencing uh, uh, Jesus' ministry, we would have seen that what we're talking about now is the coming messianic age that we see focused in him, in the Savior. And so the promises that are made there are the promises of what the kingdom of God would be like in the messianic era. And this passage flows from the historical reality that Isaiah is speaking about the return from exile the return from exile in Babylon. So the return to Jerusalem, the idea of exile and return will be something that is taken up by Jesus. 
taken up by those who followed him and began to see this, believing that the exile had not been fully completed until his ministry, his earthly ministry. And so they will understand this sort of liberating activity as the bringing of the Messianic era predicted by Isaiah in today's reading. And Isaiah, who, the Isaiah who wrote this section, also would have said this that I'm describing is what occurred initially in the coming out of Egypt into the Promised Land. So this is in some way a new exile and return. And that apparently, if we try to make sense of this in human history, rather than go over the moon about it, maybe this is God's renewing work that continues in human history. And that we become now the cooperators and the participators in God's plan. Always bringing in our own hearts, individually, this sense of return and renewal to the things that are important to us. And as the people of God, returning to what's uh, the core values, so to speak, of uh, the Christian faith and life. And Advent is one of the times during the year when that's what we do. We're thinking about reconnecting and new beginnings and so forth. So that's the idea. And there's some joy attached to this. Joy for the Christian person is the sure, steady confidence that the ambiguities and uncertainties of life are going to come into surer and clearer focus as you live a life of intention and seek to know God's will and purpose for you. And that these things are not going to focus themselves only or primarily in your religious practice, but they're going to have a lot to do with your basic humanity. They're going to have a lot to do with how you clean up your relational life. They're going to have a lot to do with how you revivify your vocation and how you become the best human being that you can be. And so those things are going to be part of what it means to be joyful. It's sort of a, a, a confidence that is driven by faith because it's not driven by certainty. But it's the idea that things can come clear to you and do. And all of you have experienced that in big and small ways as you've lived. In all aspects of your life, if you think about it, uh, you, you have. Maybe you'd like it to be more than it is but you at least know that it's there. In the Gospel, we have John the Baptist again, and in this week's reading, John the Baptist sends some disciples. Uh, th this really derails what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, because this is the only chance you get during the week to do it. Uh, there's no question in many people's minds that Jesus was a disciple of John the Baptist. Some believe that he was related to John the Baptist. Uh, this poses, this tells us something about the authenticity of the biblical witness and also about the fact that uh, the church, early New Testament church, had to deal with this awkwardness because clearly Jesus' ministry took a left turn from John the Baptist after he was connected up with him. So he moves now from preaching a, about repentance as the centerpiece, Jesus to preaching the kingdom of God and its nearness. John the Baptist in this story in Matthew sends some disciples uh, to Jesus and said, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus, I think, with, um, 
with humility, uh, doesn't toot his own horn. He just says, well, look around and see the results. He doesn't mention himself. Look at the results of what this is producing. The blind receive their sight. The, 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 the lame are healed. The poor have the good news preached to them. We have a number of things that bring restoration from alienation and exile to wholeness. Look at these things, and you need to make your mind up about all of this. And then Jesus uh, gives to the hearer a commercial message about the importance and the centrality of John the Baptist. John the Baptist for Matthew and certainly for Luke represents the culmination of old, the Old Testament prophecy. He stands at the door of the new era of Jesus Christ and he announces his coming. And so he tells people uh, about the importance of John the Baptist and why it's necessary for him to be here, that he is the culmination of the Old Testament prophecy. So there's some expectancy here, isn't there? Because people want to know, are you the one uh, who is to come or shall we look for another? And as I mentioned on the first Sunday of Advent, expectation as a spiritual category has to do with the allowing yourself to uh, have, allow your imaginative powers to have the fullest play in your life as possible. The use of imagination and vision is very important. And you'll notice, of course, in societies that are in regression or are chronically anxious, that ability to, ha to use the imagination and to use uh, a vision is severely limited, you know? If everybody's worried and nervous and we're back into the reptilian brain, it's not possible for us to use uh, our imaginative powers. And so as we begin to see, it's important and to expect that there's going to be something here looking at these results, but you and I have to appropriate the meaning of what Jesus' ministry is, because Jesus doesn't tell you in today's passage. Absolutely. He just says, here are the results of what we're doing here. Now, you need to decide how you appropriate that and make that part of your own personal history in your life. If you understand that Jesus is the template that you lay over your own spiritual life and development, how is that now going to play in your everyday living in some ways? So we have joy and expectancy brought to us in these two uh, readings from the Gospel and from Isaiah. And then we have a short reading from the Epistle of James that's poodling along on its own and not connected to those readings. And James is saying to his readership, you need to be patient. Talks about the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. Advent is about two comings. The birth, the first coming, which is really what the first two readings are about in a way and uh, the second coming. And how do we understand what that means? I've talked to you about this before. Do we mean that the second coming is Jesus is coming again with God and we're going to have a divine ethnic cleansing and then we're going to move into a new uh, world, a new place? There's a whole, there are a whole lot of theories and have been from the jump with regard to what this all means and what we ought to be expecting. And there is a fairly um, 
substantial body of evangelical Christianity in the United States that holds views about this that are central to their self-understanding. And a guy named Tim LaHaye has made a fortune uh, off of writing novels about this called Left Behind. Some of you may have heard of that, you know. It's all about the rapture and it's all about all this sort of stuff going on. Now these uh, theories of the second coming have names that are kind of pre-millennialism, millennialarianism, you know, dispensationalism, dispensational pre-millennialarianism, <laughs> right? There's just a whole lot of them. Well, in ancient Christianity, there is one that I'm going to read to you because this is the one that officially is accepted by uh, certain of the churches, including the Anglican Church. And then I'm going to ask the question afterwards, so what? But you should know. By the, I, I got to give you a commercial message. If, if you go online, there's a great website called Religious Tolerance. And it's the Ontario Consultants on Religious Tolerance. It's a wonderful website. It is the most even-handed explication of all of the variety of beliefs in Christianity, the other great faith traditions. And it speaks about these things with, uh, without prejudice. It just lays them out so that you can read uh, what they have to say. The theory that uh, I'm using this term theory for this stuff just like I do about the atonement. The atonement is, a, is an important theological doctrine, but it is a theory. And there's more than one. And in the 1930s, a, a famous theologian in England named Alan Richardson wrote a little book on creeds in the making, is what it was called. And he has a whole chapter on the atonement. And he said, since the doctrine of the atonement is a theory, you and I are free to make up our own theory. And the same might be said about all this millennialarian, whatever it is. <laughs> but here's one of the theories. It's called amillennialism, sometimes called non-millennialism or nunc millennialism. I kind of like that, nunc, you know, sort of churchy sounding. Or realized millennialism. <laughs> Anti-millennialists believe, a millennialists believe, that the millennium is not an actual physical realm on earth. They do not believe that it will last a thousand years. Rather, it began at the time of Pentecost and is currently active in the world today through the presence of the heavenly reign of Christ, the Bible, the Holy Spirit, and the activities of Christian faith groups. Both from the church and persecution of Christians will increase in magnitude. Uh, finally, the current church age will end suddenly at Christ's second coming. The Antichrist is looked upon figuratively and not as a real person. This belief was held by many leaders of the early Christian church during the first and second centuries A.D., Simultaneously, other leaders, perhaps the majority, taught a version of premillennialism that is very different from today's dispensational premillennialism. St. Augustine, 
often called the father of amillennialism, was largely responsible for the establishment of amillennialism as the formal church belief. It remained the generally accepted system throughout Christianity until after the Reformation in the 16th century. Many Christian denominations, including the Anglican Communion, Disciples of Christ, Lutheran, Orthodox, Reformed, Roman Catholic, and some Baptists, continue to teach amillennialism. So there you are. <laughs> Frankly, I read this and I said, I don't know what help this is to me. <laughs> and as one, as one priest in Arizona used to say, a retired priest, I liked him a lot, he said, you know what? I'm only getting about 10% of this. <laughs> right? <laughs> so you and I, though, need to ask the question about the second coming. And here's how I've always understood this myself in my own prayer and in my own life. And that is, is that, you know, Christ comes many times to you. And here, this could be an omen. <laughs> but you know, in our own life, as we seek to know more fully and clearly God's purpose for us, there is uh, some species of second coming. And the reason we have a church year is this stuff happens over and over again, you know. And you need to hear those stories over and over again, the narrative to begin to see if in this particular season in your life you're going to appropriate the idea of how Christ comes to you and how you're going to uh, keep Jesus before your eyes in adoration, Jesus in your heart and communion, and Jesus in your hands and cooperation. How that's going to happen. And perhaps that's more useful than wondering whether or not we're going to have some dramatic event occur in the future. And, you know... Uh, that's a good thing, I suspect. I can hear my grandparents saying, well, maybe it'll happen, but I'm glad I won't be around for it. <laughs> and sometimes those are my sympathies too, right? So we need to think about the second coming in another way. This week, the, 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 the assignment uh, should be to see what parts of your life you've been able to access that joyful idea that uh, the things that baffle you will become clearer to begin to connect to the idea that uh, you can use the full range of your imaginative powers to appropriate the deep things of Christian faith and belief. And finally, to uh, ask God to come into your heart and to uh, show you the way in a new way this Advent. Amen. Amen.